we are in Romans chapter 9. We're looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. So we're going to read these verses to begin our study. And we're going to think about uh, the specifics of them and what they mean. So if you don't have a, have a copy of God's Word, if you do Bible in front of you, if you're visiting with us and you uh, need a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. And so please follow along with us as we're going to be spending a uh, of our time in Romans 9, verse 6 through 13. Show up without as you read together. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. But not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who falls, she was told, the older person will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. Thus, as this reading, God's holy inspired in the Romans 9 is perhaps one of the clearest chapters on election in the whole of the Bible. Before I studied these verses very much, I would have told you that election means that God chose us, but he chose the ones whom he knew ahead of time would choose him. I would have said, God doesn't like robots, and so he gave us free will to choose him. His choosing of us, then, is based on him looking far ahead into time, things that we can't even fathom because he is outside of time, and he looks ahead and sees who is going to choose him, and then chooses us. But then I started to read Romans again and again, and again, and again, and I was doing this in college over the course of a couple of months in order to prepare for a Bible study I wanted to have with some friends as we walked through the book of Romans. And slowly, God changed how I thought. I realized that God's choosing us had nothing to do with us. In the words of Romans 9, it wasn't because of anything good Jacob would do or anything bad Esau would do. God simply chose and chooses whomever God wills. And repeatedly, God has used Romans 9 to tear down a big view of human free will and build up a big view of God's sovereignty in salvation. And such was the case with Pastor John Piper. I'm going to read a bit of his testimony about this chapter. John Piper writes, When I entered seminary, I believed in the freedom of my will, in the sense 
that it was ultimately self-determining. I have not learned this from the Bible. I absorbed it from the independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I breathe every day of our lives in America. It isn't in the Bible. Not one verse teaches the ultimate self-determining will of man, but it's what I believe. The sovereignty of God meant that he can do anything with me that I give him permission to do. This was my frame of mind as I entered a systematic theology class on the doctrine of salvation. And it was in the class that we dealt head-on with the doctrines of unconditional election and irresistible grace. Romans 9 was the watershed text and the one that changed my life forever. And I remember reading and studying in class Romans 9, 11, and 12, which says, Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, she was told the older will serve the younger. And when Paul raised the question, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He responds with, by no means. For he even says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, John Michael continues, emotions run high in a 22-year-old or an 82-year-old when he feels his man-centered world crumbling around him. And so one day, I met my professor in the hall who was confronting me with these texts that were making me cry and very angry as I read my Bible. After a few minutes of heated argument about the freedom of my will, I held a pen in front of his face and I dropped it to the floor. And then I said, with far less respect than a student on behalf of his professor, I dropped the pen. I dropped it. As though that was supposed to settle the issue. As though my choice to drop the pen was not governed by anything but my sovereign. Emotions run very high as your worldview is collapsing. And I wrote in my blue book for the final exam in that class, Romans 9 is like a tiger going about devouring free willers like And that was the end of my love affair with human autonomy and the ultimate self-determination of my will. I simply could not stand against Now, I tell you that testimony not because it was at that point that John Piper believes he became a Christian, but it was at that point that he began to see and experience the Christian life in a whole new way. And I've talked with some of you, and I know some of you have told me the very same things. And although my wrestling over this issue is not nearly as dramatic and arguing with my professors in the hallway, Coming to grips with God's sovereignty in election is absolutely necessary to trust the truth that we found in Romans chapter 8. Namely, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Romans 9 teaches us a profound and glorious mystery 
Greeks. That isn't just for the ivory tower theologians. It isn't just for the really mature Christians. This isn't just for those who are able to understand deep, deep things. Romans 9 isn't some hopelessly difficult passage. You see, Romans 9 teaches us something glorious about God that will affect how we think of the breath that you just The reality of God's lasting and unconditional choice, effectually bringing us to salvation, is a hundred percent designed in Romans 8 and 9 as a comfort for us. As a salve when we get burned. As an encouragement. And so I know in a room this size, some of you are tempted to get a bit emotional about what this passage says. Some are good, maybe, and some of you are bad. And if you're struggling with this idea of God's unconditional choice in salvation, at least appreciate the comfort that God needs to provide us here. So to help frame this and to make sure we get that big picture, please go back to the beginning of Romans chapter 8 as we get a running jump into our text. Romans 8, verse 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Skip to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Go to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. Go to verse 26. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? In verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And now, Romans 9, verse 6 through 13, I want you to see two reasons to trust that God's love will be less, less. Two reasons to be comforted in God's purpose to save, to keep, and to do exactly as he desires in all our lives. As we move to Romans 9, Paul shifts his attention to talk about the history of the Jews and connect that to the Jewish history to God's election in salvation. Why? Very simply, a lot of Jews in Rome hated Christians. Many Jewish synagogues were now Christian churches. And they followed the 
design of many of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and many Jews in Rome absolutely hated Christians. And so they seemed to be outside of God's plans. And a lot of Gentile Christians in Rome are starting to wonder, perhaps, maybe God is done with the Jews. He seems to be blessing our Gentile churches. He seems to be helping us grow by leaps and bounds, but the Jews are fading fast. Perhaps God's promises to the Jews have failed, or so they think. And so Paul writes the main idea of chapters 9, 10, and 11 right at the beginning of our passage in verse 6. Right again, look down. This is the main thesis point for the next three chapters. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has received. That's the basic statement of the next three chapters. Just because many ethnic Israelites have rejected Jesus as their Messiah doesn't mean that God's plans for them are done. It doesn't mean that somehow God's promises can be trusted anymore. In fact, to the contrary. So first we're going to see in verses 6 through 9, number 1, point number 1, God's promises are unbreakable. God's promises are unbreakable. In spite of Queen Elizabeth's illustrious and stable reign for over 70 years, in spite of what seemed to be some very clear Christian convictions that she had, her family turned out to be a bit of a stranger. That's why they are dramatic television shows telling their story. That's why the tabloids in Great Britain have thrived. And now, and no doubt, these were the kids who heard the Queen say, and she comforted them after a bad dream, Oh, child of mine, I'll always be there to protect you. You have nothing to worry about. I'm here for you. Now, for a prince or a princess to hear those words, that meant a whole lot more than most of us can ever dream of, right? They were set up to succeed in life. They were born into the noblest of families. Money was never an issue for the royal family. Wisdom abounded with the best and brightest consistently there to guide and direct every one of those children. If anyone was set up to succeed in life by the world standards, it would be children born of the royal household of winter. But as queen's children and grandchildren have floundered, was there something broken in her promise that she made to her followers? Could she not protect them from themselves? See what happens with children who seem to have everything, seem to be set up for a life of faithfulness, turn out to be rebellious. What's going on? These are the questions some ask of the British monarchy. And these are the exact same questions that Paul asks about the descendants of Abraham. They had everything they would need for a life of faithfulness to God. Abraham turned out to be fabulously wealthy. He received God's covenant promises and faithfully seemed to follow God for his whole life. If something went wrong, was it God's fault then? 
But as we look at what Paul says in verses 6 through 9, we see that God's promises are unbreakable, even if children do not follow God. And so here's where Paul might say God's promises are unbreakable, even if children do not follow God. Even if children of the faithful turn out to be a treadmill. The issue is with God promises. It ends up being a lesson about how God works, about His sovereign choice, even about flesh. You see, Paul starts by reminding us in spite of what our eyes see, in spite of Gentile Christians thriving and participating in the blessings that have been given to the Jews, what does he say in verse 6? It is not as though the word of God has failed. Oh, beloved, the word of God can never fail, or else God stopped being God. God is not like a parent comforting a toddler. I'll always be there for you, we say. I'll never let anything bad happen to you, we say. We know we can't keep these promises because we are not God. But if God promises to work out suffering for our good, guess what? He means it. If God promises that for those whom he has chosen, he will strengthen us to persevere to the end, then he's going to do it. There's no option of, well, I love them a lot, but I gave humanity sovereign free will, and you know what? My hands are tied. If they choose to stop following me, that's their prerogative. Or worse, if we imagine God saying something like this, and I really wish I could have saved more, I really wish I could have prevented bad things from happening, but evil is just too great. And Satan is just too powerful for me to be able to get everything done. And yet, that's exactly what even some Christians is going on. Much better to follow the biblical pattern and say, with Paul, verse 6, it's not as though the Word of God ever failed. And then look at the explanation as verse 6 continues. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. No, just because Israelites had unprecedented blessings, clear access to God, just because they are the people of God promised, just because you are physically Jewish, doesn't mean you participate in God's blessings of salvation. It doesn't even mean that you've been chosen by God. There's a chosen remnant out of Israel, a remnant who actually trusts that Jesus is God the Son, that Jesus came to take our flesh, that he is their promised Messiah. There's a remnant to believe that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the only salvation that is offered to them. In Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the remnant of Israel the Israel of God. So in that sense, not all physical descendants of Israel actually belong to God. Not all physical Israel are God's adopted children. Unless we think this is novel or new, Paul helps us see it's always been this way. Just consider Abraham and his children. He says, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. 
But God says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now, at this point, Paul assumes a lot of us here. He assumes that we know and actually remember information about good old Abraham's family. Now, in case some of us are a bit rusty on the backs of Abraham's family, let's read the verse again just a little bit slower with a few reminders of what's, what's happening. So look at verse 7 to start with again, okay? It says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Do you remember that infamously Abraham's firstborn was not Isaac? You can all remember who Abraham's firstborn son was, right? Ishmael. And then how did that happen? Well, Abraham and Sarah were given a promise by God that their children would be greater, they'd become a great nation, and that through their children the world would be blessed and give them a land of promise through uh, their child of promise. And so they believe it. This couple who was unable to have kids for something like 40, 50, 60 years, they're old. They believe it. And yet, 10 years down the road, after the promise begins to lose its luster, Sarah begins to think, you know what, this is ridiculous. This isn't going to happen. I'm so old. I need to give God an assist here and make sure that this promise happens. And so we see these things happen. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And so Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, made a wrong done to me beyond you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May Yahweh judge between you and me. And I can imagine Abram going away. You're the one who suggested this. What are you thinking? You're getting mad at me, and you're the one who said, here, take my wife. You know, this is another person who says, oh, so we have some children. Like, you can imagine the argument. Abram goes, fine, okay. I'll give me to her. You can do whatever you want to her. He goes on, and then that, that kind of continues back and forth. Hagar eventually does give her the Abraham's firstborn. And the firstborn son is Ishmael. And God promises a great nation will come from Ishmael. But Ishmael is not the child of the promise. He says, No, another child will be born through Abraham and Sarah. So Ishmael is born, but the promised child doesn't come for another 12 years. And so God comes to reiterate his 
promise. And as God comes to reiterate his promise with Abraham and Sarah, um, Paul actually quotes God's coming again in Romans 9, verse 9. He quotes Genesis 18, 10. God visits Abraham and Sarah, verse 9, and he says, About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Well, Ishmael is 12, and Abraham and Sarah are both pushing 100. But God says, a miraculous child will come, the child of my promise, about this time next year. And he said this, because what is our theme? The end verse 6, what is it? Sounds though the word of God would fail. The word of God never fails. Even when we can't see how in the world God talks to him God is true. Therefore, there must come. And if God's promises do not come to pass, then the certain believe in God who does not believe. That is a very dangerous place to reside. So even though Ishmael is clearly a child of Abraham, even though he is the firstborn, Ishmael is not the one that God chose. He's not the son of promise. And so Paul reminds us, verse 8, read this verse with me. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And get this, Ishmael is not the only son of Abraham's flesh that God didn't choose. See, after Sarah dies, Abraham gets married again in his 30s. I'm not talking about like 30s, like it says 130s. He marries Keturah, and he has six sons with her. And according to Genesis 25, he has other sons from concubines too after Sarah dies. And he sends them all the way from Isaac. So Abraham is apparently at the end of life a pretty prolific man. And none of them were the sons of promise. In fact, many of the sons of Abraham became fathers of pagan, idol-worshipping nations in the surrounding areas and became a thorn in the side of the son of promise, of Isaac. Today, these physical descendants of Abraham are mostly He's talking with the religious leaders. 
and making the point just because you have a great family, just because you have the oracles of God, just because you've been blessed beyond measure, doesn't mean that God has chosen you. In fact, Jesus tells us if you belong to God, you will love Jesus. Jesus and the religious leaders are going back and forth about being children of Abraham. And look at this, John 8, verse 39. John 8, verse 39. So the religious leaders answered Jesus, Abraham and our father, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father that your father did. So they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. I think it's one of the most important passages that speaks of the virgin birth. See, even the religious leaders in the day when Jesus brought out knew that Jesus was born to a woman who must and throw a jab as if that's supposed to squash, squash anything that says. Jesus ignores them. <laughs> Verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I am God. He goes on to tell them there is the father of the devil. Why? Because rejected Jesus They rejected his message that they desperately need to be set free from their own sin. They desperately need a final substitute sacrifice for sin and full forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant promise that if God chooses us, if he foreknows us, he will call us through his gospel message. He will open our blind eyes. He will soften rock our hearts. And we will stay convinced that we need Jesus and that we love Jesus our whole lives. Crying out like the hymn, every hour we need So it all reminds us of God's unbreakable chain of promises for every single Christian who loves Jesus. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, right? Go back there. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Remember, Paul connects these in kind of a repeated chain to make sure that you understand that these links are connected and that you can't break them apart. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, remember that means kind of before, loved them, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, God, might be the firstborn among many brothers, or Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is an unbreakable chain of events. To be chosen by God, to be called, is to be transformed into the image of his son. It isn't to pray a prayer one time and then go about and live your life however you want to live. God has called every Christian to have a radically new life and persevere to the end. And so we learn from Israel's past and present for that matter. There are many who say they are children of God's promise. Many who claim even today to be born again Christians. 
who have a Christian heritage who show that they are not among the chosen, who walked away from the faith they once claimed, or perhaps were dangerous, act like they just But we need to remember also from this represent God's promises are always ungrateful. Even if these children do not follow. Because God chooses whomever he wills. And it goes to accomplish his good and perfect purpose in their life. And so if we belong to Christ, stay humble. Stay God will. Stay calm. You don't need to pay attention. Well, another reason we can trust that God's love for the elect lasts. Number two, God's choice is unconditional. God's choice is unconditional. Unconditional means it's not based on anything we have done, not based on anything we currently do, or based on anything we will do. It's not based on us at all. God's choice of us is absolutely, 100% freely His. Otherwise, would it be truly His choice? And if His choice of us is somehow based on our completely free choice of Him, then wouldn't we, if we had that sort of great power of free will, couldn't we Unchoose God. There are a lot of people who think that. If we have that level of free will, is God fair to keep us his children if we want to forsake him? Aren't his hands tied when granted us that level of free will? But remember, Paul tells us it is God's choice to make us his children, to help us trust, love, and cherish Christ above all. It is God's sovereign free will that chose us before the foundation of the world. God's choice of us is completely unconditional. Now you might object and say, but I really chose to follow God. I, I was there. I believed in Jesus. I didn't feel forced to do anything. I'm not a robot. I chose to follow God. I make choices all the time. I made the good choice to follow God. I did it. Just like I chose to drop the pen. But Paul says that it's God's choice is unconditional, even if you think we chose. God's choice is unconditional, even if we think, even if we feel like we chose God. Now, to make this point abundantly clear for us, Paul again shows us that God's work of election, his work of choosing who will belong to him, that's been how God always works. Even with Israel. One might think the whole Isaac Ishmael debate is not all that significant. Of course, Isaac is the child of the promise because he is the one who came from the good promised marriage, right? Abraham and Sarah is the only one, so of course he's the child of the promise. Even Abraham's sons, from the end of his life, they can't be God promised, but they didn't come from Abraham and Sarah. So you might think that's not that all important, maybe Ishmael and Isaac. And you'd be part of it. 
But what about when two sons are born to the promised heir, Isaac? And not only two sons, but twins who are conceived at the exact same time. Is God's choice going to be based on how good each of them are? Some ancient Jewish writers thought so. They imagined Isaac saying, from the book of Jubilees, chapter 25, some Jewish writers would say, Now I love Jacob more than Esau, because Esau has increasingly made a big deal. All his ways are injustice and violence. And so they would say, You know what? God chose and Isaac chose Jacob because he was better. But if you read the book of Genesis, there's another Jacob not enough anymore. No one will lie for a reason. Certainly not the last Was it Isaac's purpose to choose Jacob over himself? Or was it God's choice? Let's pick up Paul's argument in verse 10. Look at verse 10. I'm just going to read the first four, four words. And not only so. Okay? And God's choice of Isaac as a son of promise, that's what he just said, right? Because that's his connection here. John, God's choice of Isaac was not God's only promise in Israel's heritage. A similar promise from God happened with Isaac's own sons. And get this, God's promise reversed the birth order again here with Isaac's sons. And so Isaac marries Rebekah, and she also, like uh, Sarah, had a hard time getting pregnant until finally Rebekah conceives twins. And God gives Rebecca a promise as she is pregnant. So read verse 10 again. And not only so, that's not the only promise that God makes. But also, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and what's the promise? We see the promise actually in verse 12. So we read that next. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Here's the situation. Where God's blessing wasn't based on lineage, it wasn't based on trusting God for a child in old days. Here are two boys, the same parents, born at the same time, but for some reason, God chooses the younger instead of the older. That was shocking in a primogeniture culture, and that culture that focused the birthright going exclusively to the firstborn. That was absolutely shocking. Certainly there has to be a good reason for God to do this, you might think. Certainly God is to see ahead of time that Esau would be evil and Jacob good, and so that's why he took Jacob. Certainly it was based on Jacob's faith, but, but that's not what any of this says. It's not what Paul shows us. Look at verse 10, right? He says, not only so, there's other promises, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, her forefather Isaac, what promise? She was told, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. And why? Look at the middle of verse 12, 11, in order to ask it. Why was she given this promise? In order that God's purpose of election might Literally, God is reversing the birth order blessing. He's choosing one and not the other. He's done to help us understand election. To help us understand how God's choice works in salvation. God's election is based on 
his sovereign free will and not on all our choices and not at all based on how good or bad we will be right it says verse 12 she was told she was promised the older will serve the younger then he says verse 11 though they were not yet born and had done neither nothing either good or bad in order that god's purpose of election might continue notice it is to help us understand god his purpose his plan of election how he chooses that he chose jacob instead of esau before they were born before they had done anything good or anything bad is to help us realize that election is not based on us at all it's based on god's purpose then look at the middle of verse 11. it can't be more clear if you are underliners in your bibles or you have those notebooks underline the word purpose and election why does god choose the younger instead of the older why does god say jacob i love but Esau i hated so that you can understand god is the one who purposes election so that it might Anyone who trusts in Christ and has chosen is elected based on God's purpose, not our own. And to reiterate the same point that God's choosing isn't based on works, Paul continues in verse 11, right? says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of stop right there. What do you expect to happen in that next? Not because it works, but because of, what do you expect? Faith, right? Sounds a lot like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul has already talked about faith alone saving us in Romans 4 and 5. Through a grace you saved through faith. It's not on your own, it's a gift from God. He says that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But, but how does he want us to understand? Where does our faith come from? Is our faith based on our ultimate sovereign free will? Or our own purposes, or our own desires to follow Christ? Is our faith because we pursue the good more than the bad in our life? Absolutely not. Our faith is a gift from you. Based on God's, what's that word going on? Purpose. Based on God's elash and God's So she was told, verse 12, the older the Soviet was given this promise in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him The contrast is not between faith and works here. It's between our works and God's Our good deeds and God's election and salvation call. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, writes, his failure to insert human faith as a decisive and ultimate basis for God's election indicates that God's call and election are prior to and the grounds of human faith. We don't believe Simply of us who believe that we have God's words. See, this is what makes Romans 9 paradigm shift. This is why so many who have slowly worked through Romans 9 have come to the conclusion wow, I can't believe it. Even though I thought I was choosing God, 
He was choosing the alone. And God chose everyone who belonged to him unconditionally, not based on anything good or bad that's ever happened. Jacob and Esau, that's just an example. One of very many in the Bible that teaches us very plainly that God alone has ultimate sovereign free will. God alone always does whatever he pleases. God alone does whatever he purposes. So to reiterate this point, Paul writes verse 13, right? He quotes from Malachi, as it was written, made by love, but Esau by hate. And that seems about the stakes a bit. Doesn't God love everyone who died or comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior? And that's verse 14, 4. So this is a paradigm we're actually going to talk about the worship of salvation. Does this say that God hates some before they were born? Sometimes exactly what it says. And still, this looks perfectly with God's character. His desire to all men There is a tension and a mystery. And we can't solve all the mysteries, but Paul's not done with this line of argument. Starting in verse 14, he's going to go bring up more questions and potential objections that I'm sure you are having right now. So we'll get to more of that next week. For now, we understand that to say God hated Esau is emphasizing not some deep-seated hatred specifically for Esau, but it's a contrast with God's love for the elites. In verse 15, Jacob, I love, chose Jacob. But Esau, I hated not choose Esau. So to not choose Esau in some sense is to hate him. Similar to how the Jews, uh, to how Jesus said, sorry, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus said these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus advising a loathing of family and wife? Jesus is making a comparison, a contrast. True disciples must love Jesus above all else. So compared to the most profound love of God in choosing those who will belong to him, to not choose them, or hate you. Paul's going to get to your question next week, Paul. As we close, let's remember the whole point of teaching us about God's election is to comfort the weak. To console the scared and to spiritually strengthen feeble needs. See, God teaches us that His choice of us is absolutely unconditional so that we can learn to trust Him. God reminds us that His promises then are unbreakable so that we can remember when we're struggling, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion because it isn't based on your absolute free will, it is based on God's sovereign free will. This isn't just an interesting intellectual debate. This should make you emotional. There's a small correlation to how this should make us feel that I've observed several times. As a pastor, I get to perform weddings, and one of the great joys is to stand up here next to the groom as he's walking his bride walk down the aisle. Sometimes I sneak a peek over at the groom and see what he's doing. And on occasion, there's some tears of joy streaming down, and there's always a huge, stupid grin 
on his face. I was hurt once. I know why. It's because we realized, wow, she actually chose an idiot like me. She certainly could have chosen many different men, and they are far better than I am. But she chose me. This is awesome. Now, the example is a comparison. But I pray that instead of getting angry or grieved at thinking that you don't have as much free will as we thought, I hope you are overjoyed at the fact that in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your wicked heart, in spite of your outburst of anger, in spite of your sinful lust, God chose you. And his love for you will. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't believe that the only way to heaven is to trust that Jesus paid the necessary penalty for sins, then know that today. As we study this text, your goal isn't to try and understand if God's chosen you or not. Your goal is to repent and believe. Your goal is to respond to the good news that Jesus died for you and turn away from living for you and live for him because he is your only savior. Did you ever for you? If you want to give up all of Christ, if you trust in him alone for salvation, wanting to reorient your life to worship him alone, then no, that desire comes from God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you that it shows us very clearly that your election, your choosing, is unconditional. It's not based on anything that we've done, Lord. And this is a great and hopeful thing because we get the privilege of knowing that we are yours forever. That it is not based on us. So we are great. May this truth encourage us. May this truth strengthen us when we are in our moments of trouble. And may you be glorified through our thoughts and glorified our great things. Even as we close and sing and have conversations with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.